Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, where we aspire to have real conversations, real different conversations with legendary people about business, marketing, and life. And we continue our fantastic run of legendary authors. Uh, You may have heard our recent episode with Ted Dintersmith on what school could be. Um, I think one of the most engaging conversations I've had in a while and, and a really important one. And, uh, Soon, we have none other than the legendary Joe Pine, I think one of the most um, important thinkers in business today. His book, uh, The Experience Economy, is uh, coming up on its 20th anniversary, and so we have him back to talk about his uh, book and his thinking about where things go beyond the experience economy. And on this episode, an amazing guy named Buster Benson, and he's got a brand new book out called Why We Are Yelling. And it really couldn't be more timely, not only for us as individuals, as we aspire to connect better with each other and work more effectively, but frankly, for our country. Um, his book is a fascinating look at why uh, and and who, why and how we argue. <laughs> you know, if you're going to have a podcast, you should really learn how to read and talk at the same time. It would be a great thing. Uh, Buster's a fascinating guy, and I think this is a timely discussion that you're going to enjoy. Check out Lockhead.com for the show notes on this episode for the key takeaways. And uh, before we get started with Buster, my friends at NetSuite want to remind you um, that they are the world's number one cloud business system. And NetSuite by Oracle offers you a full picture of all of your business finances in one place in real time, right from your phone or your desktop. And that's why NetSuite customers grow. As a matter of fact, NetSuite users grow three times faster than the S&P 500. And now you can too, because NetSuite is surprisingly cost-effective. To schedule your free demo right now and to receive your free guide, The Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, check out netsuite.com different. That's netsuite.com different and get your free guide today. And... Um, Now, I have a question for you. Do your employees think your company is awesome? My friends at Socrates.ai are the leading digital conversation hub, and they want to help you make your company employee awesome. Imagine being able to grab your phone and text or text any HR question and get an answer back immediately. That's Socrates. Check out Socrates, S-O-C-R-A-T-E-S dot A-I today and get your company employee awesome. Now, hey-ho, let's go. Buster, first let me say... Thanks for writing this awesome book. Thank you. Yeah, it was a torturous journey for me. <laughs> a torturous journey? <laughs> How so? Oh, uh, you know, that whenever you decide to take on a hard topic and disagreements is probably, you know, one of the harder ones that I could imagine taking on. It, it creates a challenge for myself that had ups and downs. It's a roller coaster. And when I started the book, I didn't know the answers that I needed to talk about by the end of the book. And so that was the torturous part is learning. Learning is torture. (laughs) Well, that's not very inspiring. (laughs) Learning is torture. That'll be my new mantra. Yeah. The the editor didn't want me to call it that, but you know. (laughs) Well, and actually it, it does lead me to something in the book, which is, you know, big part of, cognitive bias and then the conflict around our opinions, which of course I want to get into. But it seems to me, having gone through this, that a lot of this is because as human beings, we hate being wrong. Yeah, yeah. That is, that is the, the initial problem is that in order to have a conversation about disagreement, um, we have to be open to the idea that we don't have the right answer. Um, and that is, you know, in evolutionary terms, I suppose, like a threat, right? You know, it could potentially lower our chances of survival if we're wrong. So we want to avoid it. Um, You know, we're in a a modern society now where being wrong won't lead to us being ousted from our society necessarily, as long as we're willing to learn. Um, But our our mental sort of frameworks haven't really caught up to that reality. Hmm. That's interesting. Say, Say a little bit more about that, Buster. Well, if you think back 
to you know just look at animals right when when you're fighting over something in the wild you're you're just a bird in a tree you want you want to have the right you know location for your nest you're not going to engage the other birds in a civil disagreement you're going to just try to be the bigger bird and um, you know force the other one out and that might by right um, sort of philosophy has carried us pretty well from birds to you know modern day um, in a lot of senses the case, though, is that you know when we're no longer in a situation where um, there's only one tree and we have to have our nest here, um, or else we're going to die. Um, where it's more about like, hey, which one is better? Can these two things coexist? Is the tree big enough for multiple nests? You know, uh, what other? How can we work together to build a better you know culture here? Um, the consequence of being wrong isn't isn't death. It's actually growth, and um, that difference of like, how do I treat something that's normally a threat to my survival as an opportunity for growth is the the core cognitive dissonance that's happening in our heads um, in disagreement. That's fascinating. Now, part of what I think sets the context for this is a discussion around cognitive bias. Mm-hmm. Um, because if I'm not mistaken, that's sort of what led you to this if I've followed you down the yep. internet rabbit hole that I've been chasing you. Is that <laughs> Good correct? Luck, yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> so um, maybe pop the hood for me on, okay, so what is cognitive bias? Yeah, we, we all have a sort of the pop culture uh, understanding of it, which is, you know, bias is this thing that our brains do that leads us to make the same kind of mistakes over and over again. Um, because for some reason or another, uh, we have a heuristic or we have like a rule of thumb that we go by that tends to be right, but is sometimes wrong, and it's wrong in the same way. Uh, and so we think of it as like a blind spot. We think of it as a as a mistake. Um, and that was my initial um, understanding of it as well, until I underst- until I tried to figure out, you know, why do we have these mistakes? And you know, reading all the the, the research on it, all the academics on it, um, experts on it, you know, they they provide a function in our brains. You know, when when we have to make a decision we always have to resort to some kind of um, rule of thumb or shortcut to get there because uh, we can't, we can't understand or sort of have access to all information. We can't, you know, get everyone's perspective and we can't consider every single possible option. We have to always take a shortcut. Um, and so how do we, how do we deal with that? What is our response to that problem? Um, there's one of them, one of the responses is to try to remove all these bugs from our brain it turns out that that doesn't work. <laughs> so that was the initial um, part of the question that was really interesting to me as a product manager um, at a lot of these tech companies and product leader, um, because we wanted to become better and better at making decisions. And if the if the thought is that we can just remove bias from our decisions directly um, wasn't working, then what are we going to do? What is the next? What is the other thing we can do other than that? Um, and that question has has been a hard question to answer. So maybe uh, we can push on this one. Um, the idea as a product manager, let me see if I'm understanding. Uh, you have this aha that says, oh, we have these biases towards certain ideas and approaches. Uh, and therefore, to develop uh, great products, legendary products, maybe some of these biases might be actually holding us back. Mm-hmm. And so how do we eliminate these biases to have a, a more broad way of thinking Uh, about a certain problem or a certain idea or a certain opportunity. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then you discover that removing the biases is essentially impossible. Did I I get all that right? (laughs) And in fact, trying to remove them oftentimes makes it worse. Now, aren't there certain cases where certain biases uh, can be incredibly helpful or in some, in some environments save our lives? You know, we, we have a bias towards how to behave on the road and, as a, as a car driver, and if you're mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a relatively safe driver, uh, you've built up a database of things uh, based on real experiences so that you know when somebody cuts you off, um, what there is to do or, mm-hmm, you know, to mm-hmm. avoid a, something in the road, et cetera, et cetera. So there are these cognitive decisions we make based on prior experience yep. um, that are fairly accurate and in some cases could save our lives mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. in a work context. Um, we get good at, one of the things you talk about, human beings are good at patterns, right? So we get good at applying a context or a pattern 
And it allows us to make a decision that somebody that doesn't have that context or experience and therefore pattern may not be able to make. And so I, I guess all that said, I'm, I'm very curious, Buster, about sort of, there seems to be a real duality to this. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's one that I'm, I'm interested in exploring because I do think that biases, you know, it's hard to talk about biases as a morally neutral brain sort of function. Um, it's often very easy to say that they're bad and that the opposite of biases are good. But, you know, the, the, the reality is, is that we can't do anything without them. We can't, we can't choose where to go for lunch without having some kind of bias for familiarity or a bias for exactness or, you know, a bias for sticking with what everyone else thinks, you know. All these things are required for us to work and to think and to make decisions. Um, so, yeah, we can't, we can't just get rid of them because they're providing all this, all this valuable stuff. And one of them, you know, like there's a lot of biases around safety and around remaining you know, away from the danger zone, right? So if you have multiple decisions, you're going to choose the one that um, is least likely to kill you, right? So, you know, in a work environment or an organizational environment, oftentimes that means just agreeing with what other people think, you know? So if if my boss says that this is the right thing to do, hey, I agree with it because it's most likely to allow me to keep my job. And that applies to many other things where we can end up doing the thing that's the most... um, you know, historically likely to have our survival, but ultimately make us miserable um, because now we're not really participating in to the full extent of our, of our sort of capacity and our creativity and our, like the thing that we're actually hired to do might be to be the creative person. And that means challenging the status quo sometimes. That means, you know, standing up for something that's being um, unpopular because it's the right thing to do. Um, and those kinds of things are, so we have to see both sides. We have to see how they are useful and also how they can create unhappiness in our lives um, and to try to remove the things that cause the unhappiness um, without thinking that will ever be done. <laughs> you know, we're always so, trying so to repair the damage. So let's yeah. go to a source of unhappiness for many of us and, and you deal with it right up front in the book. Um, uh, you, you say early on, uh, we aren't taught how to argue productively. And, and you talk about how conflict in any relationship is, is inevitable. And so if you and I are going to do kind of anything together for any, any sort of period of time, at some point, um, you and I are going to disagree about something, right? Mm-hmm. Hopefully, and, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so there's this interesting word you put in front of disagreement, which is productive disagreement. And right up the front, right up at the front here, you say, that um, productive disagreement is the most important meta skill anyone can acquire. Right. Tell me about that, Buster. Yeah. So if you think about, we uh, we have several skills that uh, actually, when we're good at them, make us more skilled at everything else. For example, talking, um, being literate, um, being able to self-reflect, um, all these things that they're they're skills in themselves, and they also magnify the value and the power of other skills. And I think productive disagreement is, I say it's the most important one because it is as important as the other ones, but it's neglected. It's not one that we really um, highlight or train ourselves to do. So there's this huge gap between where we are and where we could be. Whereas, you know, literacy is also really an important meta skill, um, but we're mostly there from, you know, we're, the gap is a lot smaller in terms of making sure everyone is literate. Um, so I think that's why I consider it the most important one. And it's important because think of all the conversations you have um, that are about some form of sharing of information, sharing a perspective, sharing of, of what's important to you. And if you have those conversations throughout your day in all kinds of different contexts and you come out of each one feeling frustrated, misunderstood, um, sort of unhappy, um, that's going to be a real cost in our lives. Like it's going to sort of lead to the lack of progress in every single area of our lives. On the other hand, if we are able to come to a conversation where there's a big disagreement and come out feeling like you now understand that person a little bit better, you actually can understand their perspective a little bit better. You enjoyed the conversation and you made a little bit of progress that you can now act on. That stuff will compound and compound and compound to the point where, you know, it's highly productive. You'll, you'll, you'll open so many more doors in your life by making just a small incremental improvement in the skill. Um, and yeah, that's, so that's why I call it a meta skill. It, it can sort of 
lead to things that you can't even anticipate at the time because by just having a stronger relationship, you might, yeah. you know, have an opportunity down the road that you never would have even considered. Well, and so that, isn't that an interesting thing, right? If you and I feel like we're in a relationship and uh, you matter to me and I matter to you and your general well-being and vice versa, and we, maybe we're up to some stuff together, whatever it is, personally, professionally, or some combination thereof. When we get to a disagreement place, the way we treat each other is going to be very different because of that relationship. Yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yeah. Like I, I, you know, I'm, I have friends on the far ends of either political spectrum in, in this country. And I have beliefs that range across the spectrum. I don't identify myself as a Republican or Democrat. Mm -hmm. And so I have some beliefs that are fairly left and I have some beliefs that are fairly right and some in between. And so I don't know what to call myself, but anyway, right. I have friends I mean, across the spectrum, yeah. people I, I love people I would do anything for. Yeah. And sometimes they'll say stuff and I'll go, that's fucking nuts. <laughs> I mean, that's just yeah. fucking nuts, right? Yep, yep, yep. But my love and respect of them stops me from saying, hey, you know, Jimmy, Susie, that's nuts. And I say, okay, well, maybe I say, tell me more about that. Or why do you feel that way? Or I'm not sure I get it, but, uh, you know, whatever you're going to say, because mm -hmm. your love and respect for them stops you from saying, you're a nut job. Sometimes. I mean, this is the interesting <laughs> thing is that there's a huge difference between saying, hey, you're, you're a complete nut to your best friend and your, you know, someone that you love and that they know that you, they know that you love them than to a complete stranger. You know, if you say it to a friend, that could be the most kind thing you say to them, right? It could be in the service of like, hey, let's, let's figure this out. Like, I don't get where you're coming from. Let's figure it out. Or like, or you know, this is so you, you know, this is, you know, an expression of your, of your life. And I think it's bonkers, but you actually do still see them as a whole person, as a human. Um, when we take that strategy that really works with really close friendships um, and apply it to people that we're complete strangers with, or people that we, you know, don't understand at all, um, and we don't even see them as human, that's when it becomes harmful. Um, and so one of the, you know, uh, conventions or norms I like to upset a little bit is that, you know, Productive disagreement isn't about being polite or nice. It's about being friendly. And the way that you act towards your closest friends is oftentimes confrontational. Um, oftentimes has passion. It has like, you know, your willingness to jump into something that's important to you. That's what I call friendly debate, right? That's what I call um, the kind that we should have more of. But that means that we need to be able to see people as humans um, more often and not just have these with people that are sitting in our, you know, in our living rooms or that are family and friends, but also people that we've never met before, people that we don't understand yet because we could say, I don't understand you. Can you help me understand your perspective? Can we become friends? Um, and then we can move into that productive debate. Yeah, that's, that's, that's very cool. The other one, and I know this is not necessarily in the book, but it's on my mind is, is um, sort of uh, re realizing this one doesn't matter, mm -hmm. right? And my wife mm -hmm. and I do this all the time uh, on bigger stuff and, and on littler stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, we don't fight very often, um, but we had a dust up a couple months ago, which is very unusual for us. And normally a dust up for us lasts 30 minutes at most. Anyway, both of us were busy. She had to run off. I think I had a podcast, whatever it was. We didn't get to resolve it in the moment. So we sort of reconvened a few hours later or whatever it was. And uh, we met in the kitchen and Buster, she just looked at me and she said, are we good? And I said, yeah, we're good. <laughs> and that was it. Exactly. Um, yeah. And so some of this though is, is a little bit of that, right? It's like, am I, do we really need to fight about, I don't know who gives a shit, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Like, yeah. And you know, if so you have, you have a foundation there, then that you can say that, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I wanted to sort of get into with you is why is it so hard for us? You know, towards the end of the book, you, you sort of bring up immigration. Mm -hmm. And the impression I got was, you know, you're, you're purposely poking on a hot button topic in the U.S. <laughs> right now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what, what I'm concerned about, and maybe I'm hoping you can shine some light on, on a big topic like that, that is of national importance across many dimensions and it's multi-layered. Why are we unable 
in a public, thoughtful way to stop yelling at each other, as, as your book suggests, and say, okay, mm-hmm. l- let's talk about this. Mm-hmm. Let's talk mm-hmm. about the southern border and all of the questions and concerns and problems there may be there. Let's talk about the fact that there are roughly 5 million well-paying jobs in our country that aren't filled right now, and we as Americans aren't filling them, so what are we going to do? Et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Why can't we sit down and break this thing into pieces and have a thoughtful, hopefully as factual as possible discussion about it? But yet what we experience is, and it doesn't matter what news network or, or, or website you want to tune into, there's just mm-hmm. a lot of yelling. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is so this this example was was probably the one that I found to be the hardest to articulate because it really comes down to it's this multi-layered problem where you know the question of immigration is a question about space and uh, sort of home, right? It's 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 the, one of the most um, central questions we have about us is like who can come into our house, you know, what is expected of them once they're here, you know, what are the rules that might get you kicked out, right? all these things um, at the national level. And the interesting thing I found was that, and the reason it's in this chapter called Cultivate Neutral Spaces is because in order to have this conversation, we need to have a neutral space to have it within. And that neutral space is not Congress. That neutral space is not, um, you know, (laughs) broadcast news. Where is the neutral space? It's not Facebook. So I think the one thing that's, well, the most important thing that's missing from this conversation is a neutral space. Like, how do you create a space where someone can come in and say, like, I am against, you know, um, open borders and, or even like, you know, more immigration. I am for it. And we're going to talk about this in a place where I can bring my ideas. They can bring their ideas. I can invite new people and new perspectives in. They can invite new people and new perspectives in. And we can build this um, sort of group relationship over time that is about the problem and not about the people within the room. Um, and I call it like the cultural element where, you know, we, we know that we welcome each other into the space, even though we disagree. We can talk about arguments and disagreements, even though we don't endorse them. Um, and sort of bringing that attention first to the space that it's happening in. Because, you know, if you're trying to, um, you know, play a game of basketball in a pool, it's just not going to work. And so first you got to find a basketball court. And then you got to learn the rules and then you got to start playing it. Um, I think that's the same thing that needs to happen with this debate is like, first we need to find the space to have the conversation. Then we need to build that sort of muscle memory of welcoming ideas, welcoming people and working together over a period of time, because we're not going to change anyone's mind, you know, with one sentence or even one day or one conversation It has to be ongoing. And this space can be the place where that happens. Um, and yeah, so that's sort of my, you know, my thoughts on it in terms of just like, what can we do? Um, and even before if we do I that, just, if I could oh, just copy there, sure. I, I, I'm sort of, my brain's working on multiple dimensions as you're talking. Yeah. Um, one of them as a, a sh- shameless uh, super consumer of podcasts long before I ever got into it. Um, one of the real reasons I love podcasts is because you can get into it. There's mm-hmm, no mm-hmm. time constraint. There's nobody telling us what we can and can't do, right? Absolutely. And so we can get into this at whatever level we want. And if you want to get into the deep philosophical beliefs around a certain style of boat building and you give a shit about that, (laughs) and then there's a bunch of people who give a shit about that, you can go mental on that and and have at it, whatever the topic is, whether it's immigration or some very niche expertise or or, Mm -hmm. and everything in between. So I love that. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The other thing I'm wondering, though, if you sort of take it out of the media realm, let's say I'm working in a company and, you know, we're having a strategic debate about should we or shouldn't we do a very meaningful acquisition and we want to have a very thoughtful um, set of arguments presented and scenarios presented and we want to we purposely look at it from every angle because we're about to invest a massive amount of money mm-hmm. and it's a huge risk but potentially a huge opportunity. We want all voices to be heard. And, and even those of us who are pro this decision want to try and be as objective, given our biases, as we can and, mm-hmm. and challenge our own thinking. So we really, truly want to have a thoughtful debate that is as fairly fact-based as possible. And let's say there's a group of 10 or 12 people coming together to make this decision. Master Buster, 
what do we do? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think so. It's interesting to think about that question because, um, you know, companies do have these conversations and then oftentimes they are highly productive, right? There's, there's an incentive in a, you know, a board meeting or a leadership council meeting or an offsite to, you know, you're all, it's, it's implicitly stated that you all sort of have the same interests in mind. You all um, understand your relationships and your strengths and your weaknesses. Um, you don't just invite 12 random people to it. You invite people that are each there with some kind of perspective that um, sort of adds to the whole conversations. I think, you know, companies where, you know, large stakes of money are involved actually can solve this pretty easily because the fact that there's this huge incentive and this huge sort of shared um, upside allows you to invest the time and energy to, you know, spend money on the experimentation and the research and the thoughts um, and the, like, invite new people in to help you make that decision. Most of our decisions don't have that high stakes sort of outcome. Um, and so we don't have the resources to fund all the, you know, the, the research that is required to make that, you know, I would have, I could invite 12 people over to my house and we say, let's solve immigration. Um, none of us have done the research. None of us have the time to spend 48 hours, you know, um, sort of hashing on this. We got to go back to our jobs. And so we end up having only like, okay, well, we're going to try to solve a big problem with a very small budget. Um, and so that's another way to do it. I just, I don't think that that works in all cases, right? You have to sort of match the problem and the question with the resources available to it. There's also something you, you sort of triggered in my head as you were talking about that, which is, and I don't know how successful I am, but I pr- I try on this one to realize that there are certain topics where I'm actually extraordinarily qualified to have an opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've done this fucking 50 times. I wrote the book on it. I'm the mayor, right? Right. And I I know what those things are. I know what my strike zone is. I know where I'm super qualified to have an opinion, particularly one that is going to sound very decisive. And most of the time I believe it's so (laughs) based on a track record, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't want to get to you about decisive decisions in a sec. But but also uh, you take a topic that, I, I might care about, but I know there are way more people in the world that are extremely qualified to deal with it. And I'm not, you know, take peace in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. I've been to the Middle East. I've read a lot about it. Uh, I have friends from various parts of the Middle East. I've had many a dinner and a glass of wine discussing situations going on and what shouldn't, shouldn't do. And, da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. and, and it's, it's important. And even though, if you ask me, I'll play with you about some this topic. Fundamentally, I understand I'm not really qualified to have an opinion. <laughs> right. And so how would you coach us to uh, sort of be real with ourselves about um, where we should feel sort of, I don't know mm-hmm. what, even what, how, how to ask the question, stronger in our biases or, or weaker or, or, or should we ever? Yeah. I mean, so this is where the skill, I think, of speaking for ourselves and asking, inviting people in, asking them honest questions comes to play. Because if you're asked a question and, you know, the question is like, how would you solve peace in the Middle East? Um, how would you answer that from your own perspective? You can say, you know, you know, this is what I know. This is what I think. And that's my opinion. But I think I can now think of somebody else who might have a better perspective let's invite them in and ask them the question and see what they think. Because oftentimes what we do instead is, you know, um, take our sort of our mindset and assume that that's the full set of information and then answer it. And then assume that anyone that disagrees with that is wrong. Um, But there's so many people out there that have information that we don't have. And we don't often take that, that step. And, you know, I, I actually think, you know, bringing you back to the podcast sort of comment you made earlier, I think podcasts are fantastic for this because you do ask a question and you're like, Oh wait, who can I ask that question? How can I talk to them about this? Um, if we had that same mindset, you know, in our political debates, in our dinner table conversations on our Facebook pages, everywhere else. Um, and we just stopped at the, like, I don't understand how the other side is thinking, hey, wait, let's go find someone on the other side and ask them what they're thinking and, and ask them, you know, what, is, what am I missing that is going to help me understand your perspective? Um, and so 
you know, it's oftentimes looking for that moment in your thought process that's like, oh, you know, if I only spoke from my own experience, I wouldn't be able to go all the way to the answer here. Uh, so who has the experience to answer this question? Yes. Now, the flip side, of course, of that coin, and we see it in business all the time, um, sometimes it takes somebody from outside the industry to completely reimagine what's possible mm -hmm. and create a whole new thing, right? Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. The founders of Airbnb do not come from the hospitality industry, and I don't even know that they knew where it was going when they got mm -hmm. started, right? And so sometimes, you know, in martial arts, they call it a white belt mine, right? And one of my favorite right. stories is um, Jack White from the White Stripe saying the band got less interesting when he and Meg learned to play their instruments because <laughs> then they knew yeah. it was possible. And once you know that, like, you should play proper chords or proper rhythms or what have you, it limits your creativity. And so I guess my point is, um, you know, maybe it's the idiot who doesn't know much about the situation in the Middle East who comes up with the big idea. And so how do you think about mm -hmm. that side of it as well, Buster? Yeah, I, I love that. I mean, I think that is like a lot of these, a couple of these questions are about sort of like, how do I know what I don't know what I need to know? Right. Um, and I think wherever you are on the, so from beginner to mastery spectrum, there's always that question that's like, what am I missing? Right? No matter how much I know, I think it's always a great idea to carry that question as well because you're never, you never have all the information, you never have all the perspective. So even if you've had a lot of luck and you've had a lot of you know, sort of progress and success in your life, there's always the chance that you're missing something. And this comes into like the um, sort of like the good, the great, or like the, the technology disruption factors where like the, you know, the incumbents are oftentimes the most blind, right? And they're not incentivized to look for their blind spots. Um, so I would say, no matter where you are, from beginner to expert, always ask, like, what am I missing? Who could see this problem? Especially if you're stuck. If you're stuck on, like, I'm doing the right thing. I'm doing exactly what I did last time. It's just not working this time. Ask, what am I missing? And look for that, you know, again, pulling someone in that could say, like, okay, I'm going to look at this with different eyes than you, and I'm going to see something that you don't see. And I think this is why building arguments together is so great, because you need people to be the eyes on the other side of your argument to tell you what you're, you know, what you're missing. And, you know, as you know, that sparks the disagreement, but that's also the information that you're missing and they can help sharpen you and you can help sharpen them. What am I missing? That's yeah. a legendary question. You know, I'm always looking for, uh, you know, somebody who got sales trained early in my career, right? One of the things they teach you in sales training uh, is quote unquote, open probes and closed probes, right? And so closed question, of course, is um, how many, how many carbidingulators might you be buying, right? 47. Mm -hmm. yeah. And an open question, one of the best ones we get taught in sales school, of course, is tell me about your business, mm -hmm. right? And of course, mm -hmm. most people ask more closed questions than open questions. Mm -hmm. But what am I missing is a legendary open question. Yes, I love it. I know it's 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 the great thing about it is it doesn't require a lot of thinking to ask it, and it invites the other person to do a lot of thinking for you. <laughs> so um, it works great at arguments where you're you're already your heart rate is spiking and you're feeling a little bit anxious about it. Um, it's really hard to come up with a really clever or cutting sort of comment. You can always ask that other person, "Hey, okay, I'm hearing this and it." I'm interpreting it this way, but what am I missing about your perspective that is causing me to like misunderstand you? Um, and you know that will do the double duty of allowing you to have some time to recover and sort of get your feet on the ground again, and sort of encouraging them to also start digging a little deeper in terms of their argument and not just continuing to lob over the easy ones. Yes, and, and it's sort of uh, that one. Uh, one of my all-time favorite questions, and I aspire to end every conversation, every communication with it, is, um, is there anything else? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Because that tends to blow something open. And the other one I like in this regard is, um, you know, could you educate me about that? Mm -hmm. And I know some people ask that with a snark mm -hmm. in their voice. So mm -hmm. I don't mean it with a snark. I mean, really, like, yeah. Teach me about that. What do you tell you? You know shit about that that I don't know. Please, right? Yeah. And so, absolutely. what am I missing? Is there anything else? And you know, educate me or educate me more about that. Mm -hmm. mm. And these are all about creating space. They're always they're about sort of um, instead of trying to drive the conversation somewhere, 
you're creating space and letting the other person add something. Um, and that is a, you know, a gift. So that to the conversation in terms of like, they might not be telling you, they might be withholding things because they feel like you're forcing them into a certain dialogue. You know, these open questions are great at just saying, Hey, I want to give, give you a little bit more space and see what you can fill it with. Cause then they have a chance to show their, their real thinking. Um, and they won't feel like you forced it out of them. Um, and it's, it's good in a lot of situations where, um, you know, sometimes you don't even have to ask a question. You could just pause for a bit and, and wait, you know, and see what, you know, what, what they say. Um, because people always want to add something. And when they have a chance, they're like, oh, now I can say what I wanted to say. Yeah. So you're suggesting that just treating them like they're morons and you're smarter than they are. And that's really the problem is that might not be the go. You get what you pay for in conversations. If you ask, you know, really narrow <laughs> questions, you get really narrow answers. Um, yeah. And uh, if you expect someone to be a moron and you only give them options that prove that to you, then they're going to present themselves in a way that you can interpret that way for sure. So let me ask you this. It, it feels like, and um, you know, the only data I'm aware of that might correlate to this, but it might not, is, is that with the rise of social media and the smartphone, um, depression rates and, and happiness slash engagement rates at work have gone down. Now, whether one's causing the other is subject to interpretation, but I've seen research that suggests that um, happiness is coming down engagement and uh, sort of interest in work is coming down and social media and, and of course mobile phone usage has, has spiked in the last decade or so. Mm -hmm. And so um, on social media, of course, we see people fighting and arguing uh, in ways that you'd be surprised to see them fight and argue and use words and so forth. That would be very surprising in person. Well, what's that about? And, and, and maybe, some some coaching on how to be a human being on social media. Yeah, yeah, that's the uh, you know the million dollar question I think. Um, so I, I, my my take on it is that you know a lot of it goes down to we weren't taught how to do this. Um, we weren't taught how to have conversations in a land without context or a relationship or or um, or repercussion or accountability or um, we were just so we were we took all these tools that we built around having in-person, you know, one-on-one -on -one conversations. Um, and we try to apply it to a completely different context, which is one where anyone can fly in the room, drop a bomb and fly right out. Um, and we're like, what, what, you know, what was that all about? Um, now we're just going to close the doors and the windows everywhere we go, make sure no one flies in. Anytime they come in, we're just going to like push them back out. Um, and that's, you know, a natural response to, you know, stress, right? Like if you're stressed, you just want to shut out the things that are causing you stress. Um, and as a result, what I think is happening is that we are dehumanizing people whenever that happens. So anytime someone comes in and they're like, say something, they, we push them out. We're like, oh, that person doesn't know what they're talking about. That person, you know, can't be trusted. That's just like, this is next time they come in, we're going to block them. So we get these cultural norms around blocking and around, you know, banning and, you know, all these things. And we stop seeing them as human because we never even saw the human. We only saw the avatar, maybe a username. Um, and so this pattern of just creating simpler and simpler and more evil um, and wrong caricatures of people um, is building up over time. And we're slowly, you know, oftentimes you can see the ranting happening, but nobody is the object of that rant in the conversation, right? So now we're ranting to our, to our peers as a way to shut it down, shut it down a little bit more. Um, that's, I mean, a lot of these things are why I went on this journey to like, you know, what are we, what are we missing about this, this loop? Is this just going to get worse and worse and worse if we just continue to demonize and demonize and demonize um, and shut off our spaces? And we're not actually ever going to talk to someone we disagree with again, um, which is disastrous because we're not going to be able to solve those problems if we can't talk to the people we disagree with. Well, it also seems like we've sort of forgotten something. And look, I'm guilty of it myself, um, which is, the power is in the debate, right? If you think about it on the political spectrum, would we want a country run by nothing but Republicans that are on the far right? Do we think that's a good answer? No. Do, do we think a country <laughs> run by nothing but Democrats on the far left is a good answer? No, we don't. 
Yeah. It's the dynamic tension. And, and it, sometimes it can be frustrating, but uh, I wouldn't want either side to go, you know, full tilt boogie with control of the country. Mm-hmm. Right. And so there's almost sort of a, a loss of the idea that the power is actually in the dialogue, in the dynamic tension. Um, one of my favorite quotes, and I wish I knew who said it is, if you haven't changed your mind lately, how do you know you have one? <laughs> I like that. I haven't heard that one. That's good. Yeah. And so uh, digitally, I try to communicate like the person's there. So it's like, I don't want to type anything that I wouldn't say if you were sitting in front of me. And then in a work and business context with email and text, um, I've always thought, and, and look, maybe it doesn't work anymore, particularly with the speed of business being it is today, but anything of consequence, anything that's more than like scheduling a meeting or swapping some documents or something, you know, that's fairly transactional. If it's a substantive um, debate that's going on, it needs to come off fucking email and we need to sit down and have a human to human conversation. But Mm -hmm. am I antiquated here, Buster? I don't think so. I mean, I think, you know, we have to lean on the tools that work for us um, in order to, to build our skills. I'm, I'm guessing that, you know, Considering the number of conversations you have, like you, you, you know which tools to use. I, th- I think sitting down in front of someone and having, you know, breaking bread, sharing a meal, like sort of inviting them into your house, inviting them, like these are all social rituals that a signal to that side that, that it's safe. And this goes back to the cultivating that neutral space. Like, what are the things that I can do to de-escalate the like the the heatedness, not necessarily the emotion, but just like de-escalate the defensive stance. And say like, hey, let's go get a drink, um, or let's go, you know, get a bite, you know, and let's, or let's go on a walk um, and talk about it. We we use these instinctively in our family sort of situations, and you know, when we're dealing with family members or children or or friends, um, and we can use them for for our other um, relationships as well. Like these are these are really old tools that we know how to use. Um, so I, I think that's great to to use what we can and to find that flow where you know you're you're being stretched a little bit in the conversation and the other person's being stretched a little bit in the conversation neither of you are way over your head and neither of you are just like you know coasting and not thinking about it at all uh, finding that sort of optimal state where you can have a back and forth that is challenging and yet not too challenging um, I think that's one of the key elements to a, a great discussion um, and yeah I think food and walking and you know <laughs> physical presence and body language, all those things are hardwired in us to help us build that you know, rapport. Yeah, isn't, I don't know if this is accurate. Uh, have you heard the story that um, shaking hands um, became a custom as a way to show that we didn't have anything in our hand, we didn't have a weapon in our hands? Yeah, yeah. I don't know if yeah. that's true or not, but there's there's got to be something about the welcoming in the open hand that is, is certainly physically emblematic of the kind yeah. of things you're describing. And it's also sharing germs and sharing, you know, all these other things that you know, could be <laughs> threatening. You know, if you're, if you see someone, you're disgusted by them, you're not going to shake their hand. Um, if you do, you know, like even in the Bible, this happened a lot with like, with Jesus, you know, like just sort of, you know, shaking hands with a leper was his way of saying like, Hey, you're, you're, you know, I consider you a human. Um, and, you know, I think those are, these handshakes are, you know, every, these are something that we just don't do enough of, of like just, um, opening the context, inviting the person in. If they don't want to shake your hand, you're not going to have a good conversation with them. Um, if they do, then maybe you will. Yeah, it's a, it is a fascinating custom and, and to some people disgusting, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. old school. I'll still, I'm still, I'm still okay with it. Well, it opens now, that question. It's like, do I, am I disgusted? If I can't shake their hand, then, you know, how are we going to share our minds? Right. So yeah, it's, it is a fascinating custom in that regard. Yeah. Now, you've got a whole section in here on developing the honest bias. Can you, um, can you walk me through um, this thinking? And, and you know, I, if yeah. I'm reading it right, is the, the antidote in a lot of ways to some of these problems? Yeah. So this was the angle that I came to the book with was trying to really just, I was originally going to write a book about overcoming our biases in some way. And this was the genesis of that chapter, um, which is, you know, rather than taking a stance of debiasing, rather than saying like, hey, I'm, I know I'm biased, I don't want to be biased, I'm going to take steps to remove bias from my life, what that does while having good intentions is it trains your brain to not look for bias because it wants to prove that you're getting better 
at this. And so it's unfortunately a way to um, stop seeing it. And because it, it would prove that you're you know, not making progress if you continue to see as much of it in your life as before. On the other hand, um, the approach that I advocate for is to develop this honest bias approach, which means to look for the harm that bias has caused and to repair it. Um, so regardless of trying, you're not trying to change yourself in the moment, but you're trying to change the past's effects. And it's sort of like the approach of like, you know, if you're, you're, if you're weeding, a, if you're, if you have a garden, you don't try to stop all weeds from ever growing. What you do is you have a, a maintenance routine that sort of weeds them out as they come up and sort of contributes to the health of the garden. And it's an always on approach. You always, it's just basically committing to the, I'm going to continue having a weeding process in my life. Um, you know, I'm going to continue having a repairing process of bias in my life without having to ever be done with weeds or bias or whatever it happens to be. And that turns your mind into, you know, use that, you know, familiarity effect to be like, okay, well, my goal is to find bias and repair it. Your brain's going to then look for it and find it and be able to repair it. And that's going to be evidence to yourself that you're making progress, which is great. Um, anything that helps you see it faster, which includes asking people, hey, hey how am I, you know, how am I, has my approach um, maybe undervalued some of your work or overvalued some of somebody else's work? Um, and inviting that in so that the loop of things happening and you learning about it goes down. Um, and that, you know, it's a lot more um, practical to just fix the effects too than to fix the cause. Um, and yeah, I think it's, yeah, that's sort of the approach in a nutshell. And what I love about your book is, you know, whenever we break something down, in this case, arguing and bias and turning these things into, you know, changing our biases or being open and, and, and being able to productively have conversations is when you break it down, it begins to lose some of its, its power over you, right? Because you mm -hmm. see, you can now see patterns and, and so forth. And the other thing I love about your book is uh, one of my favorite expressions, Buster, is um, thinking about thinking is the most important kind of thinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And yeah. in a lot of ways, I interpret your book as thinking about thinking mm -hmm. and, and then how that, you know, what happens when we connect with each other and, and conflict with each other. Um, yeah. So again, thank you for writing a great book. Um, is there anything else you want to touch on? Um, no, I think you really did a good job covering the main points. I, I think um, the overall sentiment that I'm hoping people get out of this is that we don't have to solve the world's problems um, immediately. What we need to do is practice um, having these kinds of conversations in our own lives on whatever level we're at so that we can internalize it. We can know what it feels like. We can sort of have confidence in our ability to grow in this because then we can project that onto our leadership and say, I expect them to have this skill as well. Um, until we can really feel it ourselves, we can't expect anyone else to do it. We'll go into, you know, we'll watch debates and we'll be like, okay, well, obviously they're just going to bop each other on the head because that's what you've experienced. Um, if we have experienced, hey, they could be reaching out and understanding this better. Why are they not? Oh, then how do I, you know, sort of project my expectation onto them in a more productive way? Um, that's my hope is that we can work from the bottom up here and uh, first start with ourselves and then start to expect others to do it as well. Well, Buster, I can't thank you enough for joining me. Uh, I've really enjoyed this and I really did enjoy your book. Uh, thank I you. wish you great success with it. Thank you so much. And that was, it was a pleasure to, to be on here. And you're welcome back anytime. Thank you, my friend. All right. Take care. There he is, Buster Benson. Uh, I sure hope you enjoyed that conversation. And I also, I want to thank you. Um, of late, both of our podcasts, this one and my marketing podcast, uh, that is named clearly Lockhead on Marketing, are both charting in the top 200 overall on Apple Podcasts. And as you may know, there are 750,000 podcasts. And um, that's an extraordinary thing. So I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart because we know that it's your shares that are doing it. And if you love this episode with Benson, please share it. And thank you so much. Uh, as Vala Ashar from uh, Salesforce taught us, it's not what you know, it's what you share. And I deeply appreciate you sharing this podcast because it's your shares that have made us uh, number one in business and one of the top 200 overall on Apple. 
Um, also, if you want to send us email, you can always do that. Send an email to blackhole at lockhead.com. Uh, on Twitter and uh, Instagram, you can check out what my uh, nephew calls my week social media game at Lockhead with two H's. Um, and that's it. All right. We would like to thank the incredible Buster Benson and his brand new book, Why Are We Yelling? Check it out wherever you check out legendary books. Uh, speaking of legendary stuff, um, growwire.com. It's what entrepreneurial people um, and entrepreneurs are reading. Check it out, growwire.com. There's uh, incredible written content. There is a podcast. There's a YouTube channel and much more, growwire.com. Now, my friends at Splunk want to remind you that we are in the data age and they help you bring data to everything. Splunk brings data to every question, decision, and action. Check out Splunk, S-P-L-U-N-K.com slash D2E, as in data to everything. And you'll learn how to turn data into doing with Splunk. That's Splunk.com slash D2E. And if you're looking to scale yourself, why not consider the power of a virtual assistant with my friends at Bottleneck Virtual Assistance at bottleneck.online. That's bottleneck.online. And if you're in the B2B space in Silicon Valley, then check out my dear friends at Atrenet. That's A-T-R-E dot N-E-T. Because your website is most often the first thing that people see and you want your first impression to be legendary, don't you? Check out A-T-R-E dot net. That's Atrenet. And my friends at the Front Row Foundation make a giant difference to people who are facing down uh, the potential of the end of their life. So check out the frontrowfoundation.org and help make somebody uh, help make an experience possible for somebody facing a very very tough situation. I've participated in this; it's incredible. Check them out, frontrowfoundation.org. All right, I need to remind you that this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and all rights do remain perturbed. We must warn you that clearly this podcast gets produced in a studio that does contain nuts. Please teach peace. Be nice to your mother. Don't be lame. Get out of the passing lane. Uh, while you're driving, listen to the Tragically Hip. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this podcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Elizabeth Holmes, CEO of Theranos. Sorry, Lizzie. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much. Stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your different. <laughs>